by luck or good management or a combination of both or otherwise, we've just sort of found ourselves in a position where you know, it's evolved as it has. So it's just it's good to come to work. Sound Minds Radio, getting you behind the research and ideas in contemporary life. This episode produced by Michael Schubert. Sound Minds Radio, part of the Community Radio Network. Soundminds.com.au We all love to watch a game of soccer. Some more than others. And when it comes to their favourite teams and their favourite players, fans get riled. That's the sound of fans at a Lionel Messi match when he was injured. Here's the thing. Messi gets injured a lot. Messi gets paid a lot to play. A million dollars a week was the 2014 contract. And the year before, he spent eight weeks out with a hamstring tear. Hamstring injuries cost big money. This is a story that reveals the nature of collaborative research groups that have their origins in a small number of pioneers, of the realities of sourcing funds, of innovative product development, of bridging the gap between sports trainers and medical staff. Let's listen to David Opar, Dr. Hamstring to some, an Australian researcher who works within his own research group and collaboratively with others around the world exploring the eccentric strengths of hamstrings. We had a, a great interest in measures of hamstring strength and a particular type of hamstring strength called eccentric strength, which is really just measuring hamstring strength uh, whilst the, the muscle is lengthening. There's enough evidence to suggest that that's a contributing factor to when injury might occur, but also doing eccentric exercise can probably protect you from injury as well or mitigate your risk to some extent. The issue for us was that measures of eccentric strength are few and far between and the most common is a, a lab-based technique called an isokinetic dynamometer, which you know, typically are in universities or hospitals. And we really struggled to get much of that data, even though we thought it was important to understand better athletes' levels of, of hamstring strength and this eccentric strength. And We'd done a little bit of work with an exercise that is relatively popular in the literature called the Nordic hamstring exercise. Really is just a body weight exercise, typically done partner assisted. An individual is kneeling, they have their feet held down to the ground and they you know, lean forward slowly and ultimately resist the effects of gravity on their upper body mass. And it's an exercise that's been shown to increase hamstring strength and eccentric hamstring strength. Have you got that? Don't try this at home. Next time you're at the gym with an exercise science graduate standing by, kneel, have someone hold your ankles down, and in your best plank position, lean forward slowly. And while we're on the subject of exercise science graduates, who's doing the hamstring research? What perspective do they have? And how does a hamstring research group evolve? in sports injury. It sometimes gets referred to as sports medicine. It's probably a little bit misleading. The area we work in is probably one typically the domain of the physiotherapists and, and perhaps the sports doctors. And I think that's probably been one of the, the real benefits of us coming at it from probably just a slightly different viewpoint. As exercise scientists and sports scientists, you have a, perhaps a deeper understanding of, of certain things that the physios and the docs don't necessarily. The genesis of our research and our group is 
with Tony up at Queensland University of Tech. I moved up there to do my PhD under Tony and very quickly then was co-supervised by a guy called Morgan Williams, who was at ACU in Melbourne and then shot over to Wales. Everything we did sort of has flown down from the footprint that Tony left uh, up at QUT and guided a lot of us from that point forward. So you know, Tony, just an unbelievable tertiary educator and researcher. We all benefited from learning from him very much based on understanding mostly strength training stimulus and, and the response and adaptation to that. The group's expanded now across three or four institutions. That's where everything was driven from and, and a lot of our inspiration and motivation still comes from. Our group is one of the, the forerunners in, in that area around the world. You know, there's good work that gets done, obviously, throughout Europe and in the US as well. I'd like to think that as, as a group, as a collective, we can be you know, considered in the top four or five groups in our area. Many of us have had a hamstring twinge at one time or another, that big muscle group at the back of the thigh. It's only three muscles, but they do a lot of work not only extending the hip backwards, but also decelerating the leg before your foot hits the ground to take the next stride. I figured there would have been a lot of research work done. Relative to a lot of other things, a pretty young area of research. There's papers on hamstring injuries, at least in the scientific literature in the 60s and 70s. One of the big issues about it in terms of an area of study is that it's not eminently fundable. What you, you note in the literature is often there's individuals or groups who sort of phase in and phase out of the area, partly because the continuation of their career, it's probably best suited for them to go down other directions that might have greater consequences for the economy at large. In terms of what we've looked at, I think we certainly have stood on the shoulders of, of others who have come before us. I suppose we've just been on the verge of being able to collect new data and then also to analyze it and look at it interestingly as well. Almost like a, a R&D department in our group who, you know, we try to develop new tools, then also taking that information and looking at it, hopefully in a, a slightly novel and innovative way. And I think they're some of the contributors as to why our work, at least in recent times, has been popular. I wouldn't necessarily say we've done anything exceptional or out of the norm, but we've just you know, built on what's been done before and tried to do a few things differently as well. David's being humble here. The research group at QUT developed a field-use machine for measuring eccentric strength. There are several hundred in use around the globe. More on that later. I wanted to know about the predictive ability of the work that David's group is involved with. We looked at initially really small lab-based studies and then started to apply things into the field and then to use some of those simple field measures to see if we could collect more data on cohorts to see whether there was an association with injury risk with some of those new variables. The classical ones have always been the older you are from a hamstring injury perspective and an athlete that might be getting above 24 or 25 years of age. The older you are having a history of hamstring injury or, or maybe a history of major knee injury as well were non-modifiable risk factors, things that you couldn't change. There's always been some interest around strength and, and flexibility, and we've started to also now look at the internal structure of the hamstring muscles using ultrasound as well. With a combination of say, four of those variables, age, previous history of injury, eccentric strength with our field tests, and then also the structural characteristics of the muscle. Gives us about 35% of variance in future injury status, so basically about a third of the overall picture which is not bad, but it also tells us that there's so many other things that need to feed into 
the spectrum of risk as well. We'll probably continue to try and look at what might be other innovative tools that we might be able to use to take measures, particularly in the field. And they may be around players' exposure to load, their running patterns or their stride pattern uh, and how they vary over time. Because I think we need to continue to build some of those multivariate models to better understand the problem. I think we'll chase that rabbit down the hole for at least a, a the next couple of years. Whether it's misguided or not, yet I don't know. Ultimately, we're never going to explain 100% of why injuries occur. That would be prediction in its truest sense, and we'll never get there because there's elements of uncertainty in sports, sports performance, human physiology. What we'll aim to do, hopefully over the course of the next two or three years, is try to look at how well we can identify risk with the information we have available to us and to actually put some objective data to that so that we can at least start to get an appreciation for how poor we are really at identifying an individual's risk of going on to be injured. I think in concert with that, we want to look at what are some of the other elements of the profile of an athlete's risk that we might be able to monitor or measure better are there things that we can take more regularly? Are there new techniques or methodologies we might be able to develop that can give us a few more of those variables? You know, that's an ongoing and long process. It sort of has an intrinsic feedback element to it because the more we develop, the more data we need to collect and the more we need to be feeding that information back in so we can hopefully try and develop better models that are able to identify risk. The other side and element of it for us as well is then also our streams of rehabilitation. So what can we do from a rehabilitation perspective that might either be able to minimise time away from sport when you are injured whilst not compromising risk of re-injury later down the track. So can we get people back quicker with small levels of re-injury risk? And we'll probably also try to develop a few still lab-based techniques as well, almost the basic science stuff to try to feed our overall practical program of research as well. The next question for me is, who's reading and using the work that they do? Yeah, I've taken their work, certainly in Australia, definitely in the UK, and the US is always a little bit slower in terms of exercise and sports science. Elements of our work start to be picked up over there as well. There's often, particularly in elite sport, some headbutting that goes on between what you might consider to be the medical department, which is often physios and the doctors, and the sports science and strength and conditioning departments. The fortunate thing I think for us is that we work in a stream that put under that sports medicine realm or area potentially, but we come from the other side of things. And sometimes the interest sways from one way to the other. I think initially our work was of most interest to the sports science guys. And then now the sports med guys, it sort of swings back and forth a little bit. The aim of our work is to try and be as, as complementary and multidisciplinary as possible. At least the information we try to provide people in the implied environment should have learnings across all those areas as well. It's been you know, really nice that we get to have conversations across the board. I say medical and performance, and of course they should be integrated, but often you find that they, they can be separate entities. We have, I think, that ability of our background being in one area, our work being in another, and being able to hopefully fuse those together. Back where we started with Lionel Messi. The fans are in uproar because he's been injured again. And that's the thing. These big sports clubs pay big salaries. You'd be thinking that they'd be pumping lots of money into injury prevention and assessment to protect their financial investment, as well as their players. You, you would think that some of the sporting clubs around the world who have 
enormous player salaries would value, you know, for lack of a better term, the, you know, the occupational health and safety of their athletes to the same extent that any other business would be. But elite sport around the world spends excessive amounts of money on their player salaries, and, and I don't think they match that investment with investment in their player health. I think it might be appealing to suspect that professional sporting teams will tip money into research that they think will be beneficial, but the reality of that is that that's actually rare. The vast majority of their spend is on player salary. The clubs with lots of money, happy to buy a solution. And of course, that's the culmination of the work that we do. Here's some instructional videos and away you go. And that's far easier for them. Now I'm wondering, who supports David's research group? We've probably focused on sports where the injury is most prevalent. We tend to then also leverage some support out of those teams. Now, often that's not financial support, it might be in-kind support, and, and the teams that are better resourced are often able to provide a little bit of help with either collecting some data or helping us to package up some data or, or whatever it might be. The main impact that we've had at a practical level, and, and it probably goes beyond just the scientific realm, is that the, the hamstring device out of QUT was ultimately commercialised. There's now something in the vicinity of 250 teams around the world now have that device and implement it and use it as part of their measurement of athlete risk, say their baseline of pre-season screening, and then varied uses in terms of how they might use it to assist with their understanding of training and fatigue, but then also to use during the rehabilitation process for their athletes as well. That's been one of the biggest impacts that we've had in terms of influencing practice or having an impact at, at the cold base. It's a big story. Lots of players, research groups around the world, factional challenges, even a dose of politics and big money. The question I had for David at the end, as a researcher, what's it like to turn up at work each day? There's a lot of like-minded people who enjoy what they do, like working hard as well. So we just, by luck or good management or a combination of both or otherwise, we've just sort of found ourselves in a position where it hurts evolved as it has. So it's just it's good to come to work and enjoy doing this work that you do every day, but then also the people that you work with as well. So I feel very fortunate to be part of that team and also be in that situation. You've been listening to another episode from Sound Minds Radio. Visit our website, soundminds.com.au.